0: Hey, guys, we've got something a little bit different for you today. I recorded an interview with the guys of the Unashamed podcast with Phil Robertson, Al Robertson, and we had an amazing conversation. And so I wanted to put that interview on this feed to make sure that all of you got to hear it. Love these guys. We had an awesome, really profound and encouraging conversation that I know you're going to love. So here it is.
1: (laughs) I am
2: unashamed. What about you? So we are super excited today uh, for two reasons. One is we dumped Jace, um, which is always good or bad depending on your perspective. But Jace uh, had to go and work on his, uh, his treasure hunting show. So but in his place, we have we have a major upgrade. On the Unashamed Podcast with Miss Allie Bestuckie. Mrs. Allie Bestuckie is with us today. She's one of our fellow Blaze uh, hosts, which we love. So your first time actually in the the, the lair, which we're excited. Because you've been on the show before.
0: I have, yes. But but we had to Zoom
2: you because it was during the pandemic.
0: Yeah, all that. It's so much better to be in person, I think. Right. It just comes across a lot better. I don't know about an upgrade, but I am honored to be here taking Jason's place. So.
2: And also we have Zach is, is with us today. Zach has been MIA. People have been asking about you, Zach. It's so funny because you get so much grief from Unashamed Nation because Zach used to fill in for me a lot. And so it'd be like, well, it's better when Al's there. Zach's used two big words. And, you know, they, oh. they're always throwing him under the bus. <laughs> and so then now I'm getting like, well, wait a minute. Where's Zach? We're missing Zach. Where's Zach? Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, all we needed was a little bit of a distance. So yeah. Zach is going to be taking Jay's chair today. So. A-
3: absent makes the heart grow fonder.
2: It does. Though. So so tell folks what you've been doing just so they'll know because they, they keep asking me.
3: Yeah, so we're working on a movie right now in Shreveport, back in Phil's old stomping grounds. Um, and we're. We've set up shop. We're going to start filming in hopefully three weeks if everything goes as planned. So we've been over there doing pre-production, and um, yeah, it's going to be a powerful story. So definitely stay tuned. We'll let you guys know about what we're doing because we want to definitely get our audience involved in all the pre-marketing stuff. And it's going to take a you know take a lot of people to support this and get it out. But uh, it's a it's a powerful story, very powerful. So
2: what's your what's your take on the story, Dad? What do you say? What's your story? My take on it? Is Embarrassing <laughs> That's it Why do you only keep embarrassing me And so Because it's It's from the era Of dad's life that yeah. Where he wasn't a Christian So yeah, Also
1: Paul wrote about his past With He just said Look I'm the worst and, yeah. and I read What he was up to Before Jesus Struck him down On the road to Damascus He pretty much was the worst And I thought You know It makes me feel A little better <laughs> That I was not as sorry And low down As this cat but so now you just run with it. It is what it is. Well, and you know, forgiveness is a powerful thing. I can ta- tell you that we've Ooh. talked about
2: this before, Dad. <clears throat> because of your such a stark life change at 28, you know, you had those years before that. And then out of that era, you know, we found out later we have a sister, Phyllis, that is now in our life. Yeah. <clears throat> but you know, it's interesting because the, a lot of the national response to you, even by those that don't like you was like, well, he said he was a bad guy, and then he turned it around. So I thought, you know, even if, if, you're, if you're pretty open that you had a past and that you weren't who, you, you know, you are now, even people that don't like you are like, well, you know, stuff happens. And I don't know if it's just because of their own personal angst or whatever, but I noticed with Dad, that was a lot of the response
3: to when we found out we had a sister. It wasn't like, oh, this guy's a hypocrite. Well, he, he had already detonated his own time bomb, which is smart. But um, a lot of what we're doing in the film takes place in – Junction City, Arkansas, which you said you had a connection there, which is interesting. So I've got a... Yes,
0: very small world. So you coached football in Junction City, correct? Yep. So my dad and his family, when he was young, 1970s, moved to Junction City, Arkansas into the house that you had just Moved out of Whoa. Whoa. Isn't, that a, isn't that a crazy Small world And so they Moved to town You had just Moved out of a, a house That was owned I think By the high school Correct You'd moved out So they could Move in And then he did End up playing For the dragons But that was later
1: Did you find Any of my stuff Around that <laughs>
0: I, don't, I don't know About that Before my time I don't think yeah. so but. Just
1: asking I'm He's scared. still looking For some of that yeah. stuff uh, out of it. Well, that, is that is amazing Well from that time <clears throat> Before I met Jesus At 28 after that, all the Junction City was behind me. We, I went from uh, just a low-down heathen to an ambassador, as though God were making his appeal to us. He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. So where he put me, yeah. brought me up out of that background. Now I'm, I'm an ambassador, a messenger for Jesus. So it's, it's a... It's a wonderful thing. So
2: a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. Alibeth, we had a—I <clears throat> was preaching at our local church here, and there was a big bus showed up, and it had about you know forty uh, high school girls on the on the bus, and they all get out. So I was like, hey, so I go back and meet them, you know. And they—they're like, where are you guys from? We said, well, we we came to Junction City, Arkansas, <laughs> for a high school basketball tournament, and so but we just had to come down here and visit y'all's church. And so I thought about that, the difference in when you were in Junction City. Now people are coming and saying, hey,
1: we want to check you guys
2: out spiritually, you know, find out what you're
1: up yeah. to. I've often wondered what kind of, but, uh, you know, my old buddy, he uh, watched me for 12 years after I came to Jesus. 12 years later, at first he came up and said, hey, let's go up the road. I said, no, I'm not going anywhere with y'all anymore. <laughs> I said, you're fellows who I ran with in the past. I said, you're looking for the old Phil Robertson. He died, you know, and was buried. I was speaking of my baptism, and this is the new one. The new one, no more drunkenness. I'm So hit the road. So they all drove up, out, left. Well, he kind of kept up with me over a period of 12 years. Called me up one night, I, I went to see him, and he said, guess what the doctor just told me? And I said, I have no idea. He said, The doctor said I have an aneurysm near my heart that could explode at any moment. So I'm hanging by a thread. I have to lose some weight before they do surgery. And this and is the baseball coach at Junction City, yep, City, right? Yeah. Baseball and he talks. was a biology teacher. A, and a vowed atheist. Right. And I said, Well, you've been an atheist all your life. Are you having second thoughts? about He said, I want to know what changed you that much. So, because he was talking to me 12 years after mm-hmm. I was converted. So I shared Jesus with him. I baptized him. And then about 30 to 50 days later, a month and a half, wow, the aneurysm did explode. So he cut it pretty thin. <laughs> but he did make it. Well, they called me up, asked me to do the funeral. And I said... Which you'd never done a funeral I before. I said, I don't even own a suit. I said, I noticed most of them guys at funerals, they pretty <laughs> spiffed up. I said... I've never got around to purchasing a suit, so I think he might have to get somebody that's they said no, he requested you. I yeah. said, Okay, I'll be there, so I go up there it's a packed house, you know and and I told him his story, and that I would see him again, yeah so
3: that's pretty wild. That was the your dad, up. I guess your dad may have played baseball did your dad play baseball?
0: Football. football? He played football. You might put Junction. that
1: in the movie.
3: I, <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, I'm sure he'd be I'm sure he'd be happy to yeah. make a cameo. So or he something. was yeah. he was
2: a teenager when they moved to Junction City?
0: Yes. He was yeah. a teenager. I don't remember what year it was. Maybe you would remember when you moved out of that house in Junction City. We left
2: about we left Junction 70s. City. Seventy two or three. So when we left that house, we we moved we still were in Junction City sort of but we moved up north right on the state line above it where and we had a bar and so dad went from being a school teacher to running this bar mm-hmm. which is kind of the heart of of the, the worst days it was for a us. rough yeah. joint. Yeah. So he was still in Junction city. He just, we were kind of on the wrong side of town. Right. You know, during this era. So we were there about another year mm-hmm. before we left. So that was right, right around 72, 73.
0: Yeah. I guess he would have been, well, he was born in 60. So he would have been like a preteen at, right, that, right. at that. It's age. amazing. Yeah. What a small, small, world. small world. Well, we have a lot of family. My whole, my dad's side of the family is all from Louisiana. My grandmother, we just buried her a couple of years ago, not too far from here. So, Yep, a lot of connections. Well,
2: you know. Which is pretty neat. So, out about this house that you were describing, so we when we moved there, uh, I was four, 1969. We were there about three years. And so, from four to seven, that's sort of the year you start having memories. So, like, my idea, the school was right there. And I viewed it as a little small child as just this great wonderland because I had the school, the baseball (laughs) field. There was a dump down there that I, you know, got burned my feet a couple of times. But when I went back and looked at it, because I I spoke up there a few years ago, and it was this little tiny, I mean, it it was so small, but, you know, in a child's mind, it was huge. So it was like, you know, kind of brought it into perspective that how much things had changed for me, Mm -hmm. although the area was still there. The house wasn't there anymore. So where the house used to sit, it's like a bus bar now, so they have like school buses and stuff there. So the old house is gone, which yeah. was my first place that I really remember yeah. living was in that Johnson City house, yes. which is fascinating. So uh, Allie's podcast is called Relatable, and it's on Blaze TV, and also the book. The last time you were on here, we were talking about it was "You're Not Enough" and that's okay. Have you have you done anything since then? Are you working on anything? Or
0: I am working on another book, but it's in the very beginning stages. Okay. So. Um, what have I done since then? Well, I had another baby. So not a book, but very important. Um, yeah. And so I've been busy with that and the podcast. And the next book will come out probably fall of 2023. So we've got a, a bit of a ways to go.
2: Excellent. Well, and dad, so you did an interview with dad too, probably for one of his projects and you were pregnant. Yes, and the he first re-
0: time around. Yeah, yeah, he
2: remembered that, but but you said he didn't ask you, which oh, I'm so yeah. proud of dad <laughs> because that's so unlike
1: him. I yes. learned my lesson the heart. Way.
0: <laughs> you didn't say anything. And I was like eight months pregnant. So it would have been, been okay. Right. To, yes. But I remember his, the story that he told me.
1: Yep. One of the sisters, you know, girl, I didn't know you were pregnant. She said, I'm not. And I said, oh, okay.
0: Last, last time you ever asked that question. This got spied. me
1: out in the parking lot. She said, you idiot. I don't ever <laughs> I ask anybody that. Well, I
2: learned my lesson on that one, you know. So so, Alabeth, to to jump off here uh, today, I wanted your book. To me, it really exposed sort of our self-absorbed, narcissistic yeah. culture. You know, what I mean, I I thought it it was so good for that. And I, I look back and so the last time we had you on, we were just a few months into the pandemic. So I thought I, I want to ask you since you were here and and we had a great discussion what it, it over the course of the last year and a half looking at covid the response to it sort of our culture and how that is how how does that what have you seen over that year and a half as to what you wrote about in the book at our culture. Is it better? Is it worse? (laughs) What do you think?
0: Something that I talk about in the book is that this idea that is fed to especially women, that you are enough, you're perfect the way that you are. You don't need to change anything about yourself. Everything that you want, you absolutely deserve, and you'll get it if you just work hard enough. It's this very strange new age idea that really inside of you is like this perfect goddess. And if you can just do enough work, you'll finally be able to manifest her. And one of the questions that I posed in my book was, well, how is that going? Is that actually helping the mental health issues that a lot of young people say that they struggle with today? Is it helping the suicide rate? Is it helping people be more confident, more satisfied, more fulfilled? It doesn't look like it because those numbers, those statistics for our generation, millennials and Generation Z, Aren't doing well. And yet, we are the generations who have been told from birth that we are awesome, mm-hmm. that we deserve a trophy no matter what, that life is all about us. We've had these devices in our hands for, you know, uh, over a decade at this point that have made us feel like everything is about us. So if If we are being told that everything is about us, that the world centers on us and that we're amazing, and yet we are the generation that's suffering more than previous generations with all of these issues of feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied and desperate and purposeless, then maybe what we are being told and what we are being sold actually isn't Helping us. And I think that has been demonstrated even more so over the past couple of years as we've seen a lot of young people struggle more than ever with feelings of purposelessness and loneliness. And I just keep hearing that the antidote to these things is just loving yourself more, is just thinking about yourself more, is just being more confident in yourself. And the entire premise of my book, and I believe this more strongly than ever, is that the self can't be both the problem and the solution. If inside yourself you are finding these feelings of inadequacy and insufficiency and desperation and and depression and anxiety and all of that, you're not going to find the solution to those things in the same place that your problems are found. And so the book is really about how the gospel offers something infinitely and eternally Better That Christians aren't called to self-attention and self-obsession, but to self-denial. And that paradoxically, it doesn't make sense to our, you know, worldly, fleshly mind, but denying yourself, thinking less of yourself and thinking, really thinking of yourself less um, is the key to the satisfaction and the fulfillment and the purpose that you're looking for and can really only be found outside of you in your Creator.
2: Yeah, that's, that's well very, said. It's very strong. Let's take a break. Zach, uh, Jill wrote her book, Shallow, which to me has some of the same ideas in it that she just described. Speak to that and just kind of how you guys you know, try to stress that same thing with with folks, especially younger people.
3: Yeah, we were we were on our way back from a conference, a writers conference in Nashville, and this was several years ago. <clears throat> I won't say the name of the author, but there was a a big buzz about a particular author, and, and I read. So we listened to her book on the way back, and it was basically the the message of the book was exactly what she said: bootstrap yourself up, work hard enough. You know, live your best life. You do you.
0: Girl, wash your face, all that. Yeah, <laughs> got it.
3: Okay. You, 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 you <laughs> oh, said it, not oh, me. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> but, but as, I, but, but as I'm, I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, you know, the problem here is that at the in the back of my mind, I know that I'm not enough. I mean, everybody really knows that in the end. Yeah. So, you know, this idea that we're going to bootstrap ourselves up. And I think what Jill was speaking to in her same thing is just like, we've got to get like, we, we don't like, I think the, the message that that we're hearing in culture now is, is you're not that bad. Uh, you know, God loves you the way you are. You're not that bad. And, and the message of the gospel is that God sees you and says, you're not that bad. You're actually much, much worse than <laughs> you think you are. Yeah. And, and. I affirm you there. I see you there. While we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. Romans five, and and that's I think that's where the gospel is so powerful, especially in the culture today, where where it, we are kind of under a new workspace system of of righteousness. And but I think it's just appealing to this inner inner honesty of like 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 you said, the pragmatic question is how's it working out for you? You know, we're more miserable than ever. We're more isolated than ever. And I think COVID certainly exacerbated that. But I mean, these the, these elements were there, and I think the gospel does provide the only solution to the problem because the the gospel is about um, intimacy. It's about restoring intimacy in us. But the only way we're going to be able to find intimacy is if we're known, and the only way that we're going to be known is if we if we let our depravity be seen, or at least admit that it's there, and then let God of like say, I, I see you there. Why you why you're in that place? You know that that's where I came for you. That that's where I died for you. So. Yeah, I mean, I I, I totally agree. You know? Well, don't you think, too, that the more selfish we are,
2: the more it divides us in terms as a people? I mean, because you think about when, when COVID first happened, it was a fairly unifying event at the beginning. I mean, you know, the president comes out and his people come out and it's like, you know, we got to do something about this. We're not sure. And so Americans were like, man, we got to. We gotta, you know, do this together. You know, is we're gonna fight this thing, but it has now over two years, went from a fairly unifying event to the most one of the most divisive things that I've ever seen. So why is that? I mean, what happened where people went in and said, "Hey, this is something we need to do
1: together," and then now all of a sudden, where did we go from the? I heard them talk about it here, there. What little news I get. Uh, but the me generation, what what was meant by that? The me generation. Which one was it? One we just come out of, the 35-year-olds?
0: No, the me generation was actually, I think it was Time Magazine that first called the Baby Boomers the me generation. Yeah. And then there was, I don't know if this is the official title of millennials. Well, here
1: comes their children.
0: The me, me, me generation. <laughs> right, I know. So I don't the triple know what generation C is. But. It,
1: lo- it looks like to me there's a deficit that, took place during these these generations coming and going I'm 75 Uh, love is patient you're like that does not sit well with the 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 impatient love is kind love does not envy so you don't worry about other people what they're I wish I had what they had. I don't have it. I think there's something wrong with me. They seem to be doing better. It does not boast. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking, always concerned about you, 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 the me generation. You got that probably from your parents. Love is not easily angered. That would be a nice world if people were slow to get angry and this one oh my goodness love keeps no record of wrongs like what kind of person would i be if i kept no record of wrongs with the people i interact with i just let it go love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth love always protects always trusts always hopes always perseveres, love never fails. So I'm just looking at it from watching my generation, the me generation, and their children. I just looked at the whole thing and I said, no wonder Jesus said the two greatest things that there is is love God and love each other. That's the backbone of what I'm about here. It seems simple, but it is rather profound to practice that loving God and loving your neighbor. And these qualities would come forth from you. It looks like it's, it would be easy to do, but as you live your life, you say, no, it's pretty tough. <laughs> because it's,
3: it's selfless, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, well, it's a, it's a description of God. First John four, eight says God, all is this love.
1: wrangling with within yourself that, Alibeth was talking about all that wrangling with you. It's all about it's this way instead of well, to, like this. To, yeah.
3: to, to live a sort a self absorbed life. Ultimately, is to live a life that's not. We're made in the image of God, the imago Dei. You know, to live a self absorbed life is to live a life that's not reflective of who God is. You know, God is 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 outpouring. He's an overflow of love. He's he's trying because he's triune. You know, you think about, like, this concept of First John 4, 8, that God is love, and that's not a description of, like, who he is. Like, he is love. He is these things. And I you know, try to imagine you know, this this relationship, if you would call it, of father and son, that it's ontologically impossible for the son to manipulate the father. Not that he doesn't do it. He can't do it. He can't abuse his father, and his father likewise can't abuse him, and 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 the spirit between them is this actual person that that the Holy Spirit. You think about what what would a relationship look like if it, if it was completely impossible to abuse, to to neglect, to manipulate, to position, and it would be one. It would be oneness. And so you think about you start to explore who God is, and I think what to Ali's point. When we live, we're we're trying to reflect that God made us to reflect that. And that's why I think people are so miserable is because they're not living in their true nature. Like when we're self-absorbed and we and we live these these lifestyles that that aren't reflective of who God is, then we're going to be miserable. She was saying a while ago, you know,
1: it's self-denial instead of self-fulfillment. A big difference. Yeah. The fruit of the spirit that God gives us when we, by faith, come to it, you say the fruit you'll see coming forth from God's people. Number one of it, love, yeah. joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You say, boy, and that's why it says against such things there is no law. Mm-hmm. It's the way to roll, but whew, it's a pretty tough sell in today's culture. They just really have not thought it through. Sure. So I our did, job uh, is to, own them to the one who's the, who's the lover
2: of mankind. So so Ali, don't you think if so so you introduce something like a virus, and then if your culture is self absorbed, quickly people begin to think like how can we manipulate this situation yeah. to gain power to gain yeah you know, so in that kind of what you saw at all levels of yeah. Government and state government, and even just individually with the Karens and the, yeah. you know, just the whole thing, right? I mean, it yeah. just it spun out of control quickly.
0: There are so many different aspects to it. One, it was an election year. Whatever Trump said, you know, Democrats were going to say the opposite, and so that made it complicated. But I also saw, I think, this disagreement on what love actually is. And you heard one side saying, well, love your neighbor. Loving your neighbor means that you have to self-isolate, that you can't go to church in person, that you have to wear a mask, and you have to get the vaccine, you have to be for vaccine mandates. All of these things, we were told by one subset of professing Christians that that is what it looks like to love your neighbor. Essentially saying that if you don't agree with us on these things, that you don't love your neighbor. I would say that is where the real divide came in when it came to the church and Christians disagreeing. What is love? What does it look like to actually love your neighbor as yourself? Is it wearing a cloth covering over your face? Uh, because, you know, Anthony Fauci says so, does it mean having to, to watch a sermon online rather than congregating in person as scripture actually tells us to do? I'm not sure. So that to me, it was helpful. It was sad, but it was a helpful fault line Mm. to see that essentially this is not for the church, a disagreement about masks or vaccines. It's a disagreement about love. What does love actually look like? Of course, I'm not on the side that thinks that, you know, that you have to wear a cloth mask to love your neighbor. You have to disagree or you have to agree with any COVID policy in particular. Um, But a lot of people did. But I do think to your point, And I can't speak to the motivations of everyone who kind of put out that line that in order to love your neighbor, you have to get a vaccine. But it did come across to me as a little bit more self-serving. That look, now I have this physical manifestation of I'm loving. So it doesn't matter if you sit on your couch, you never give to charity, you never help someone, you're never kind. As long as you just kind of have this what's called a virtue signal. I have this mask. I have my vaccine card. I can post about how terrible COVID is or whatever it is on social media. Then. I can check the box that I'm loving my neighbor without actually having to be loving in any other way, uh, without actually having to deny yourself and be like Christ. You can just do the thing that you've said is, you know, the loving thing to do. And unfortunately, that was very divisive within the church. Um, But like I said, it kind of highlighted a helpful disagreement, a fundamental disagreement between different subsets of Christians.
2: I think that's a very strong point. Let's take a break. And reminded me of some of the videos you would see and they were rampant there in early part of, of some person, you know, in a Walmart or some place and somebody walks in without a mask and it's just like whoosh. Yeah. You know, and, and again, it was the least loving thing I've ever seen. Right. And this one of the this poor guy's like, I'm so sorry. I just, you know, I left it in the car. But he couldn't even like make enough excuses and it was just yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like yeah. from all sides and I thought I don't think that's really getting the message across.
0: Yeah, It's an opportunity for people, I think, to feel righteous, to feel virtuous without actually having to have any virtue, which is actually difficult to cultivate and grow. It takes a lot of sacrifice. But for a generation that is averse to true sacrifice and self-denial, wow, what an opportunity to look righteous and to sound awesome and virtuous and selfless by just wearing a mask and scolding other people. For not wearing a mask, that's a very easy way to kind of, um, you know, get your get your virtue points. Yeah,
2: no, I think that's strong. Um, well, and obviously, you know, it feels like now we're coming out, although I just had to travel again this last weekend. And, and so I'm so not used to wearing a mask. So I walk yeah. in the airport. I don't even realize I'm not wearing one until I come up to the TSA check place. That's how little... The mask means now, and then, and the lady's looking at me like, "I mean, you have to wear." And I said, "Oh yeah." So I'm pulling out, and and then I'm on this whole thing. I can't breathe. I'm on the airplane, and I thought the whole time I'm sitting there, and I'm like, "Why are we still doing this here?" Like in all the rules, and they tear everything, and you got to sip and chew, and (laughs) underneath the mask, you just went through it probably flying here. Well,
0: I have. Let's see. I have um, a totally mesh mask, and so it's completely just. And so it's not actually doing anything. So if you are someone who thinks that a mask is uh, helping you not get COVID, then you don't want to sit by me on a plane because that's that's what I have for. A I
1: never suffering. I never wore a mask, and I never caught anything. Yeah. Well, you've got
3: a mask. It's a, a beard's quite the mask. Well, yeah, it
1: works. Maybe, it's, yeah, but, but it but we ran into a problem because people would come and they wanted me to baptize them, <clears throat> and I said, well. Maybe some kind of rope trick. I uh, get a rope around <laughs> you. But I have to stay six feet away from you at all times because I can't snatch you on the wall. So I said, I'll tell you what let's do. The one who raises the dead, let's go with him and let's just go ahead and baptize and we'll see. But I, I never wore a mask and never caught anything.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: So, show,
1: show Allie the, the move you pulled. The one time you went into your doctor...
2: And the woman told you, Oh sir, you've got to have a mask. Show show her the move you pulled. You remember what it was? Yeah,
1: I just I just I just said, you talking about right now? She said, Yeah. I said, Okay. <laughs> well I just went like that. And I said, All right, what about that?
0: <laughs> Did she accept it? Huh? Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> they probably just looked at dad and said, Get that old coot and put him somewhere. <laughs> I,
3: don't uh, know. I mean, you think about how legalistic it is, though. I mean, it's. Well, it's I
1: figure baptizing somebody hundreds yeah. during the COVID thing. You would think at some point the disease would jump from them to me.
3: Yeah. Hundreds. Yeah, yeah, we took our kids out of school during but COVID. You say, we did anything like, ever I, happen? I, no? no, no I, I, didn't, I didn't want them to, to, to look at a – I don't think it's – the. I, I don't think we've seen yet the psychological – Well, that was – I actually the, had the that of seeing it, like not seeing facial expressions. Yes, and definitely. I just – I'm like, I don't want my kids to – I want to know what y'all think about that. I actually
2: had that as my next question is, what, especially for children that have gone through this, because and I don't know that all schools are clear now, most are, but even some still – are being forced to wear a mask. So what's the long-term damage of that, you think, just as a a culture? I mean, in terms of what Sad just mentioned. Uh,
0: Well, I think for young kids, we're definitely going to see developmental delays. We've actually already seen that. There are some studies coming out saying that there are speech delays. There's actually lower IQs in kids that were born during COVID. Um, and you know, for a lot of parents, maybe they don't have an option. Maybe they have to send their kid to daycare, they have to send their kid to a school that has, you know, a, a mask requirement. And so I'm not putting all the blame on the parents. But also there are a lot of parents. I see, you know, there are kids playing um, in parks in our neighborhood and the kids have masks on and the parents don't. So it's crazy. So I do think we're going to see developmental delays. I think we're probably going to see speech delays. Um, But I also think that it just kind of creates a culture of distrust and division in a time where division is one of our biggest problems. And we're talking about the importance of loving our neighbor. Well, I mean, if you regard your child and you teach your child to regard other people primarily as a vector of a virus and as safety, as the first priority in everything, you are not discipling your kids to be a self-denying Christian and following the Jesus that touched lepers, for sure. Um, But also, I think it just creates a culture of fear in general, even outside of the church. Um, And that just makes me sad. It makes me sad. I don't think that creates a strong, cohesive society.
3: Yeah, I would argue, too, that I think on the right sometimes that we've we've taken this issue and uh, we've turned it into kind of a political football as well. And I would I I think we have to have the conversation going back to, to intimacy and what are the things that were that, that are in our culture that are that are blocking intimacy. Yeah. And certainly, you know, me not being able to see a face is a, a blocking <clears throat> of intimacy. I remember. When when I first got out of college and and I would jump on an airplane and really up until COVID, I'd always talk to the person next to me, and now that since COVID I've I, I don't talk to anybody on an airplane because it's too much work. It's like man.
0: yeah, like, what what you, you can't, can't understand them. So yeah.
3: everyone's just sitting there and nobody's communicating, and yeah. then we wonder so why Karen Karen blows her top or whatever, and everyone's so angry. Well, we're not connecting. Even I, I think that there was a direct correlation with a lot of the racial um, problems that we've had in the church as well. That, that, that all manifested and came out after, after COVID because we weren't meeting together. Like the church that you're at, that, that Jill, Jill and I were at for a long time, is probably 50% African-American. And so we were coming together on Sunday morning and we may have had there may have been cultural differences in the body and all that. But we were coming together as the body of Christ. And it was like, man, I got it. We got to do life together and figure this out. And even I mean, there's Democrats in that church that we love and that we're and we we differ on things. But, man, we're coming together. And then when COVID happens, it just isolates everybody. And then we're, we're behind a screen. And now I don't have to do life with you. Yeah. Well, that that's a precursor for division and, and yep. fights because I don't have to do life with you anymore. And I think it's part of kind of this idea of like like even like the metaverse and everything is like moving towards isolating people, keeping them in their home. And I think the church has to come in at this point. And we have to speak a, a, a message of, of not just redemption, but also restoration, that we we can restore back local communities and cultures and, and, and things of this sort. And to me, I think that's why the local church and I think God's moving in like small churches again, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like It's like God's moving these little small communities. And he's yeah. like And you see it all over the country, all over the world right now. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's take another break. Well, no, you're
2: right, and so I I speak at a lot of events around the country, and it's so evident that people want to be together, you know, because, I mean, the enthusiasm level for places I've been, and I've been to a lot of, you know, quote-unquote blue states that have been under super strict lockdowns more than we have here or you have out in Texas, and... You know, they're just like, we can't wait to get together. So it's just like these events are just bursting at the seams, you know, because it is. It's, it's being able to look at faces again and have conversations and being able to hear, you know, what people are saying and to be able to see that, I think, which is powerful. So, Allie, it's, you know, I follow you on social media. It's very evident that you're pro-God, pro-life, uh, pro-God's order when it comes to gender and, you know, important things that, that we share with you. What do you see is sort of the greatest threats to, to Christianity, to conservative, to traditional, you know, uh, life in America. What kind of what are you seeing in terms of your discussions you're having and, you know, with the people you have on your podcast?
0: Well, I think my greatest concern is actually within the church and people who profess to be Christian teachers compromising on things that have to do with the creation order, the created order. Genesis 1 issues, I think really the big one is sexuality. Yep. You see that kind of compromise first because it's personal. People know someone who you know is gay or says that they are the opposite gender. And because we don't want to offend, no one wants to offend, no one wants to you know, be accused of being hateful or something. That's typically, I think, the first thing that people compromise on, not to mention just the the huge... Uh influence that the culture has on people and the pressure that young people feel especially to be accepting of that. I mean, it's considered not just bigoted and hateful, but you're almost like a social pariah if you don't accept this ridiculous, you know, maxim that trans women are women or whatever it is. Um, And I see compromise in that within the church. Absolutely. Um, You know, people trying to say that that's not really what God meant um, in Genesis 1 and that we're just supposed to love, kind of going back to our earlier conversation about what actually love is, I still see that as a big fault line, as a big dividing line. People who, who say that love is really just this superficial affirmation of people just being nice to people, just Staying and doing what the culture wants you to say and do, um, and you mentioned First John four eight that God is love, and something that I like to remind my audience is that we can't out love. God. And that's kind of what you see from some people who say, well, it's actually more loving to say that God did not create us male and female, that the definition of marriage is not between a man and a woman. It's actually more loving to not say that to simply affirm people. And so what they're essentially saying is that they have a higher standard of love than the God who says he is love But that's impossible because we're not love, but God is love. So everything that God says is good and right and true or bad or wrong and a lie. He says those things out of love. So the most loving thing that we can do, um, and this is something I definitely want to emphasize to women who I think are most tempted in this way of just being like, I don't want to be seen as, you know, hateful. Um the most loving thing that we can do is agree with God. Yes, the world calls it controversial to say that God made made us male and female or that abortion is wrong because God made us in his image. But these are not political issues for the Christian. They're not culture war issues for the Christian. Mm-hmm. These are pre-political, pre cultural, pre-societal issues for the Christian. They're biblical issues that have become cultural and political. And so it is the most loving thing I can do to agree with the God who is love about these so-called controversial culture war issues. And so, again, it goes back to how we define love. We define love by the God who is love and his standards and his law and what he says is right and wrong and good and bad, truth and a lie. That, I think, maybe that's always been the essential problem within Christianity. I mean, it kind of goes back to the garden. Uh, Did God really say? I still think that's the question that women and probably men, too, are being asked. Did God really Say that this is the definition of marriage or whatever it is. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's the issue, especially among young women today, is caving to the culture when it comes to superficial worldly definitions of love.
3: Yeah. Which, which is, I think, a fear, <clears throat> it's a fear of, of being marginalized. Uh, I mean, I, I, just confession, I mean, I fear that in my own life is like, okay, I don't want to be marginalized or cast into this particular category. But uh, and, and I, I think that a lot of people are pushing back on terms like culture war. Some of it, I mean honestly though, some of it I'm like I get I get a part of what they're saying. You know, like it's like we have I think the church has taken there's a, a segment of the church and I've been guilty of this of taking these these um things that you're talking about and turning them into issues and and into political issues, as opposed to, you know, we're really talking about people and we're talking about God's design. And I think we've kind of divorced that. And I think it's paved the way. A a lot of the kind of the, if you want to use the term like the woke left in the church, I I think a lot of that is a reaction to hyper-nationalistic tendencies on the right. Although, you know, we, we can't avoid to take pride in our country, I think I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think there when we divorce that, and that becomes primary over who God is and our allegiance to His kingdom, I think it paves the way for this. And I, I would I think we need like an honesty. Uh, John Stone Street did a great um, podcast on Friday on this idea of 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 this I- identity. But uh, have you, I'm sure you've probably read Truman's book, um,
0: The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self.
3: Yes, yeah. and I thought he did such a great job at like. At, at detailing like how we got here and how we got to this place where or even sexuality for example how how did that how do we get to a place where this is our identity now yeah like my sexual desire is my identity I, I see it on the right too though it, it's manifested in a different way but I think kingdom people have to come in and and bridge that gap I mean you, you do you see this as well
0: yeah it's something I talk about in my book that when you i think every problem that we have goes back to godlessness when you exchange the god of scripture for the god of self you worship yourself you lay anything on the altar of yourself including truth including other people's interests or, or needs you are completely self-serving in the same way that when you worship anything you are going to serve that thing so when you exchange the god of scripture for the god of self uh, something that I talk about in the book is that you you start to um, take on two main values, and I think that's um, your primary values become autonomy. authenticity. Now, autonomy and authenticity are not bad in themselves, but when they become primary, when they are not submitted to God's law, then they just become selfishness. Then you start to find your identity and your purpose inside yourself. So autonomy, having complete control over everything you do, authenticity, just being yourself. When those are your two main values, well, I just want to be myself and do what I want to do, and I control my body, you get all kinds of immorality. That's how you justify abortion. That's Mm -hmm. how you gender justify gender switching. That's how you justify all kinds of things that we do with our body because we worship ourselves. We worship our bodies. We worship our autonomy. We worship our so-called authenticity. Autonomy and authenticity can be good things when they are subjected to the law of God. But when you are only subjected to yourself, then, like I said, you, you know, find your identity and your purpose and your calling in yourself. And again, it goes back to that question that we asked earlier, how's that working out for you? It doesn't seem like it's working out very well.
3: <clears throat> yeah, and and, and on that, let's take our last break. Yeah, I think that's so good. I, I was and I was thinking where we're at. Like Phil did a documentary film in 2000. and Was it fifteen? 2015. Yep. Yep. And, and that the, the essential message of it was built kind of off this like a Francis Schaeffer concept of. Uh, conservative humanism is still humanism like it like it like mm-hmm. the, i think he said it uh, that it's not the it, the problem is not conservative or liberal humanism doesn't matter the variation or the coloration of it it's it's the humanism yeah. that when we're when when we're getting the thing from within us as opposed to appealing to to the triune god you know i think that's and i, I think the church has uh, it, particularly when we talk about politics man we we're not i mean conservative politics if we're being honest we have it's it's bankrupt because mm-hmm. it's not founded on the God who is there. It's not founded on a non-arbitrary anchor to reality. The Imago Day, what the Declaration of Independence says, that, that rights come from God. That's not the argument that people are making anymore.
0: It's supposed to. That is what conservatism is supposed to be. But I agree it's kind of gotten detached from that.
3: It's gotten—so I think that w- the reason why we're losing culturally and is because I have a hard time carrying the water— for this current political movement on the right, because I'm like, that's not of God. Like, like that's that's just as evil like as, what? Like for example, like we're not making the case for for liberty based on the God who is there. And we're gonna get behind or, or I give you an example, like um we're gonna like the the, the bumper stickers, I see these stickers on the gas tanks now and it's Biden pointing to the gas number. I did that. I'm like and, I, and, and I, I'm not for Biden because he spent a lot of money, too, but, but he wasn't the first person to spend money. Well, the
1: simplicity I, th- of it is governments, man-made constructs, governments, the problem with them, as it's been proven over and over, the empires rise and all of them collapse. It's because governments can't remove your sin and governments can't raise you from the dead. It's not possible. So somewhere the reality is right in front of you, and you say, it's going to take something bigger than governments to remove my sin and the the escape from Satan, sin, guilt, law, put you under grace. The grave, you say, only God can do that. So... That's where the governments are giving you the impression that they can fix all of your problems. That's two of them that they can't touch. They they can't do it. Mm. So your faith has to be rooted in something larger than government's man-made constructs. And you mentioned it a while ago, we're members of the kingdom of God. We're operating at, under a king, Jesus. And you say, and we're in a... You know, constitutional republic, it's good, but it does not meet. Who's uh, the one you? Oh, to who, who's,
3: who's the founding father you quote um, about our? I can't remember who said it. Our Our system is is wholly inadequate. Yeah. That, without. Yeah. Yeah. Without God and the second, Bible.
1: Who's the second president? What's your name?
2: Adams. Yeah, John Adams said that. Yeah. That that you without morality, and without the Bible, without God. Yeah. That you can't. You'll,
1: the system will break down
0: yeah, yeah. You know, it's it, made for religious people' that's yeah. right is what he said because yeah. he
1: read Madison the, when he read the Constitution he said this Constitution was written for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for any other. meaning if the the, the people that are underneath and live by the Constitution, once you uh, once you lose your religion, well, and it, your, your faith in God, this is
2: not going to work out for you. It's really to Ali's point that self-discipline then becomes from something other than government.
1: That's mm-hmm. correct.
2: And so therefore, if that's how I approach life, then I can function in a society and in a system. But you take that away and I'm only depending on that right. entity to, to put that in my life. You're going to fail because, like you said, either side is going to lose self-discipline and then only look for power and how to rule over people. I, I thought about real
1: love and it's separate and apart from governments. When governments in even our own constitutional republic, when they say they love me, when God says it, I get it. But when they say it, I'm like, I don't think they love me anymore. Well dad used yeah. to
2: say that, he said, When's the last time you heard a politician say, I love you
1: deeply? Yeah. And you think about it, not very often. And Listen, if they I've do. I've never you've... seen politicians get up. With, the first thing I want y'all to know is, I love you with all my heart. <laughs> they don't say that. When <laughs> I did that, when they, there was a speech up there, the guy in Wisconsin, what was his name?
2: Oh, yeah, the governor. What was his yeah, name? Yeah, the Ran gov- for president, yeah.
1: Ran for president. Anyway, oh, yeah. I spoke before he spoke. Walker, yeah, Scott Walker. Walker. Yeah, and I just mentioned that. And he got up there on the mic, and he said, the first thing I want you folks to know, and it's really true, he said, I got to thinking about it. He said, he I don't tell them I love them. He said, well, this dude just walked up here, old Robinson. He said, I'm going to tell every one of you, I do love you. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that. You had a repentance. You had a yeah. you had a
2: response right there to your first yeah. sermon. Uh, well, I thought about that in Romans because, back in the movie we talked, Rome was one of the civiliz- civilizations we talked about. Buechner and Paul said in Romans one, when you exchange the glory of God for, and then he, he went into what they were doing. But you can just draw a blank there and put anything in the blank. Mm-hmm. Any time you exchange the glory of God for whatever it is that's currently the hot rage in your culture, then you're going to have problems, and that's what happened to Rome. It's what happened to everyone since then, and it's what we're seeing in America.
1: Yeah, I, because I, they did not think it worthwhile. To retain the knowledge of God, he, God, gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And you look at that, and every empire you see that rise and fall, that's why they all fall. It scares me when I look at our country and I say, whew, 75 years of watching it, I'm like, I've never seen it like this ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scary. It like
2: scary. So uh, <clears throat> we're at the end of our podcast, Alice. I want to relatable, which uh, is on blaze TV, but of course, anywhere you get your podcast, you can get that. And also you're not enough. And that's okay. Which is the book we've referenced quite a bit today. Yes. Uh, so be sure and look for Alice. We're going to have, Allie, we have what we call an unashamed, an overtime segment, uh, which by the way, blaze TV.com slash unashamed is how you subscribe to get this uh, extra content. And on there, I I wanted to hear about your personal—we didn't have time to get to it on the regular uh, podcast—your own personal spiritual journey. So we want to explore that a little bit. So come on over if you had not already signed up uh, to to Blaze TV and do that now. Thanks for listening to The Unashamed Podcast. Help us out by rating us on iTunes. And don't miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube. And be sure to click that little bell to get notified about new episodes. And for even more content that you won't get anywhere else—